my guest today has built a digital brand of millions of followers. And he's done it, more than anything, by having an opinion, by not being afraid of being divisive. And he has been divisive. People either love him or they think he's dead wrong. His name is Tom Woods. As a podcast listener yourself, maybe you've heard of him because he's the host of a very popular podcast called The Tom Woods Show. He's also the New York Times bestselling author of 12 books, including The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History and Meltdown. Tom also holds a bachelor's degree in history from Harvard and his PhD from Columbia University. But today, I'm talking to him about how he's built such a raving fan base, the marketing strategies he's used to monetize that platform, and his view on the role of the entrepreneur in the economy. We became entrepreneurs because, more than anything, we want freedom. We want to be in control of our own schedule, income, and life. But unfortunately, that isn't always the reality of being a business owner. I'm Gillian Perkins, and I'm on a mission to take back entrepreneurship for what it's supposed to be. In every episode, I'll share with you how to get the most out of every hour you work so that you can work less and earn more. Let's get to it. Tom Woods, welcome to Work Less, Earn More. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Gillian. My pleasure. Absolutely. So I want to start out by kind of getting back into a time machine and going back with your brand and talking about how you got started. Because I know that even though today you have a huge audience, a very obsessed audience, I would say, a massive brand, you get hundreds of thousands of downloads on your podcast every month. Well, I know that just like everyone, you must have started back at zero. So take me back to when you were first starting your business and your brand. What were some of the very first steps that you took to get started? First was a mindset shift because actually you can find me. I'm not sure where, but people have assured me that somewhere in some podcast interview I did on somebody else's show years and years ago, I uttered the words, I don't have a single entrepreneurial bone in my body. So that had to be overcome. And I overcame that in large part because of out of sheer necessity. I had just left a salaried position. We had to move for family reasons. And I was going to have to more or less be a freelancer from that point on. And as a freelancer, you have to be somewhat entrepreneurial. You have to look for opportunities. So I did an awful lot of public speaking. I did online courses for other people's platforms, things like that. But only when somebody, a friend of mine, approached me and said, you should have your own platform. You, you have an audience that you've built through books and YouTube videos and things like that. And it is a, a darn shame that you're not monetizing that in any way. And instead, to support your family, you're flying hither and yon all the time when you'd rather be enjoying a tranquil life at home. So what are you doing to monetize your, your audience? And the pathetic answer I gave was, well, I belong to the Amazon Associates program and I get affiliate commissions if people click on book titles on my blog. And he looked at me, you know, like I was some 11-year-old kid. <laughs> like, what? That's your answer? So in other words, it was sheer necessity. I, I cannot keep flying around. I, I, I got to stay stable somewhere. I have a PhD in American history, but I didn't want to go back into academia. So what he said to me was, look, if people like what you're doing already, which is I have written a number of books. Some of them have been rather successful. Maybe they might like courses that you teach because maybe they'd just like to learn the information from you, somebody they've grown to, to know and like and trust. And so I created a digital product 
consisting of me teaching U.S. history and some friends of mine also with terminal degrees teaching related subjects for mainly for adults who, when they were in school, maybe didn't pay attention enough or or they feel like they suffered from educational malpractice. They didn't get the whole story or they got a warped version of the story. And so for 11 years, I've had a subscription site in which you get on-demand courses in some controversial areas, some sort of mainstream areas. And that was when I realized, wait a minute, I don't have to sit by the phone and wait for somebody to call me to tell me that I'm useful. I can create something. And that was the thing that changed. I used to think that other people create things. I just consume them. People from some other civilization create things. But when you realize that you're, you belong to the same species these people do, you can create things just as much as they can. That began to open doors for me. And from there, I've created other things. I've begun with affiliate marketing. I've built two email lists. I learned everything I could about this. And now I used to be an academic. In fact, I just wrote a blog post about this. My first salary, I'm already giving you bizarre intimate details in our very first conversation, but my very first salary as a college professor back in 1999 was $37,800 a year. Now, granted, that was worth more then than it is now, but still not, not anything you're going to retire on. I was perfectly happy as a single man to earn that. But now I do things that I take much, much more pleasure in. I reach vastly more people. I don't have to be on any bureaucratic committees. I make my own hours. I can travel anytime, anywhere I want work any time of day or night, do what pleases me. And I probably I don't want to give out figures, but let's say I earn more than that. Well, it may have taken you a little while to figure out how to start making money with your business and to overcome just being an Amazon associate. It sounds like there were some beginnings to your entrepreneurial journey. Even before that, you mentioned that you were doing some public speaking and that you had written some books. Were those the first things that really started to grow your audience? So did you enter into your business ventures with a bit of an audience already? I did. And I think for that reason, sometimes when I try to teach people in my audience how they can build some kind of online business, which I think is a good idea, given that you know during COVID, nobody knew there was the possibility that their business could be temporarily shut down. No one planned for such a thing. So for people who didn't have to go into a physical brick and mortar business, they had a definite advantage. But not to mention, nobody wants to you know, lose a job at age 55 and, and then try and go back on the job market. So I think it's just a smart idea to try to at least look into what could I build on the side. And I think some of my audience thinks, well, you had an advantage because you started off with a bit of an audience. And I did. On the other hand, you know, somebody buys your book from Amazon, you can't capture that person's email address or physical address. So I was at a disadvantage with that. It's true. And people watch my YouTube videos. They're not opting in. So I'm not capturing those email addresses. So I had an audience, but it was like nailing jelly to a wall. I didn't really have the audience until I decided I'm going to actually build a kind of business online. So then I took those people out there that I could still find who sort of generically liked me. And I kind of invited them to come in a little closer and subscribe to an email list. And then I could keep in touch with them. Well, I just like to point out that even though you started your business with something of an audience, of course, you started building your audience at some point without an audience, right? And everyone has to do that at some point in their entrepreneurial journey. So did the very beginning of building your audience process look like going out there and getting speaking gigs? 
And I'm not sure exactly what your publishing process looked like early on, but were those the first steps? And how did you overcome going from zero to starting to build your audience to starting to get those opportunities? Yeah, you're right about the public speaking, whereas now I would be mortified to sort of invite myself to a conference. Hey, would you like me as a speaker? I, I would just never, I let them come to me. I would feel terrible doing that. But you shouldn't. You cannot be shy about things like this unless you want to get shy person results, and you don't. So in terms of publishing, I, I published a couple of books that were sort of academic. Like one was with Columbia University Press that is really, is going to, let's face it, be consumed only by other academics. So it was only in 2004 that I first wrote a book for a mass audience. And it got a mass audience. It, was, it spent 12 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It's called The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History. But that, I have to say, that is one of those cases where I had a bit of luck. The, the publisher approached me and said, how would you like to write a book with this title? And I thought, that's a brilliant title, but I'm a busy guy. Thank goodness I didn't turn down that opportunity because it opened so many doors for me. I mean, yeah, it made me some money, but the money with a book is entirely secondary. It, it gives you credibility. It, it gets you speaking engagements. It gets you follow-up contracts. I got a, a literary agent writing to me saying, I'm sure you already have representation, but in case you don't, I can offer you my services. Well, I didn't. I was some dumb kid. What do I know? The, this thing fell into my lap. It is a case of making your own luck, though. Because I had a PhD from Columbia University, you know, so they could approach me plausibly with a project like this. So I had kind of paved the way for it. But so because of the success of that, I had a literary agent coming to me saying, I want to represent you. And so then he pulled me along to do things that I, I was too dumb to think to do. Like, for instance, write a follow up book. He says, you're hot right now. And that means you've got to write a follow up book to this. And I thought, she said, so smart. But I was I would never have thought of that. And because I had an agent, he could pitch it to different publishers and get a bid from them. What would they what would this publisher give me as an advance? And then they, he'd take it to the other publisher. What would they give me as an advance and go back and forth as the author, the prospective author? I can't pick up the phone and say to Random House, all right, what's your current bid? They think I had lost my mind. But a literary agent can do that for you. And so because I grabbed this opportunity, I ended up getting this guy who generated another opportunity for me, who generated, let's say, a very, very attractive advance offer. I mean, like when we got the final offer after the two companies stopped bidding against each other, I actually woke up my wife. I have to tell you how much we're getting for this book. So that was that was more or less how it worked in my case. Well, I think that something you experienced is something that we see in almost every entrepreneur's journey, which is success is created out of a combination of hard work, intelligence, and a bit of luck, right? You did a bit of the hard work part by going and getting that degree and by going and flying and doing those speaking gigs. Some people, they find shorter ways right. to get around, especially today with all the technology we have and these different opportunities we have. Yeah. But it's going to be some combination of those things. And because you did that hard work, then you got that opportunity to write that first book. And I think that a lot of the time, people get focused on only one aspect of it. They either just get really focused in on the hard work aspect and they think they have to make every single thing happen, or they just sit around waiting for opportunities because they see how other people have gotten lucky. But it really is going to be a combination. In particular, one way that, I mean, there are a lot of ways that you can get people following what you're doing or subscribing to your mailing list. By the way, the email list is, as I'm, I'm sure you know and have told people, it really is the foundation of everything. I mean, you gotta believe me. It really is the foundation of everything. But getting people on that list is the tricky part. And you can talk all day long about 
uh, lead magnets that attract people to want to subscribe. And I do all that. But how do you get people to see your lead magnet or want it? And I have a friend, one of my mentors really in all this is a guy named Ben Settle. And he is very, let's say, unorthodox in his approach to email marketing. He does the opposite of what all the experts say to do, and he has dramatically better results. And I just follow him. I have probably given testimonials to a handful, five people at most of people in my life. Ben Settle probably 5X'd my income easily by just doing what he recommends with regard to email. But one of the things he recommends recently in terms of building your audience, he says, now it's slow. It's not sexy like getting, you know, 50,000 people on your list because you were on the Today Show. But he says getting onto, and there are services that will help get you, place you on podcasts, becoming a podcast guest. He says, yeah, you won't get a million subscribers, but the quality of subscriber you get, this is the kind of person who sat down, listened to you talk for an hour and said, I want more. That's a hot prospect. And that's the kind of lead you get when you go on podcasts. And, and so, again, this is a technology that didn't even exist before. My Tom Wood show, I have been producing five episodes a week, almost 10 years now. And when you produce that many episodes, look for the podcasters who produce a lot of episodes, because I'll tell you our, our dirty little secret. We are desperate for guests, absolutely desperate, because you know I have over 2,300 episodes and people say, gee, how do you keep coming up with new topics? I don't know. I'm desperate all the time. I'm frantic for new guests and new topics. So approach us and, and there's a decent chance we'll say, yes, yes, please, please. You're doing me as much a favor as I'm doing you. Well, I like your point there about it's the podcast hosts who have published a lot of episodes because I've published a couple hundred podcast episodes, but I only publish once a week and most of the time I don't have guests. And so I have the opposite problem where people are constantly pitching me and I'm like, literally, I only take, you know, maybe 12 people a year. So I'm sorry, but it doesn't matter how great you are. You're probably not going to be one of them. But that's a really good point that, you know, when someone is publishing a lot, that they have more of a need for guests. Now, that actually leads me into my next question, which was, I'm curious, how do you decide what content to create and what to talk about when? Because I know you create a lot of content. You've created a lot of podcast episodes. You, I believe, write an email every single day or close to. So how do you come up with that much to say? Yep. And what does your decision-making process look like? First of all, I want to just lay out, I have two email lists. One is related to my libertarian stuff and my, you know, this kind of stuff that people started reading my books for. And the other list is about building an online business and all the different possible forms that can take. So on the libertarian list, it, I, I tend to talk about a little bit about current events and my take on them. And that in a way kind of automatically generates mm -hmm. content for me because there's always some crazy thing going on in the world, you know, that I can comment on and have some little take on it. Now you should bear in mind, if you're going to write an email list where you're walking on eggshells, afraid that you might say something people disagree with, it's not going to work. It's much better to have people either be hot or cold with you. You know, and I don't want people lukewarm. I want them either saying Woods is the bee's knees or Woods is a crazy lunatic. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I, that's what I want. I want polarizing and divisive. That's not everybody's style, but it generates a red hot audience because if, if you're not afraid to say what you think, you're going to say something that a lot of people do think, you know, and it doesn't have to be about politics. There are a lot of controversial topics, but there are a lot of controversial topics in artificial intelligence these days. And some people think this and some people think that. Don't be in the middle of the road. Take, be, be courageous enough to just stake out your position and you will build an audience that way. So I tend to do that with my business list. 
I, you know, I'll tend to have a little bit of a business lesson each day, but I tend to do sort of off the wall emails that transition into a pitch. So I don't do clickbait subject lines because that's, first of all, that's unethical, getting people to open on false pretenses. And secondly, it's ineffective. If they realize your subject lines have no connection to the email, they're going to stop opening. But on my business list, I'll do things like I, I won an affiliate contest by a mile with an email campaign that began with, I'm tired of Bruce Willis following me around. That was a subject line, something like that. Like, what is it? Everybody else on that campaign was sending emails that said, 50% off today only. That goes right in the trash. Or this new software is a game changer. Going in the trash. Everybody loves my bonuses. Going in the trash. But mine was, I'm tired of Bruce Willis following me. What? So people open that. Well, that was real. I was at dinner in Manhattan with a friend. In walks Bruce Willis. It was I, with no doubt about it. And I thought, well, isn't that crazy? Bruce Willis just at random. And then I realized it's not random. I know why he's in this restaurant. He's going to the same concert I am because I know he, he, he and I have the same musical taste because I read about it. Not only was he going to the same concert, he was in the row right in front of me. So I thought, all right, that's going to become an email. So I told this story about happening to run into Bruce Willis. But now how do I sell something with that? Well, here's how. The thing I was selling was a $7 ebook, and it was teaching you one little marketing technique that if you implement it, you will make your first dollar online. And that is a big obstacle for a lot of people, that first dollar. So what I said was, now look, I'm not asking you to rescue hostages from Nakatomi Towers. So see the, the link to Bruce Willis from Die Hard. I'm just asking you to make this one micro commitment to yourself. Just read through this ebook and implement it. And then by the end of the email, I bring it back to Bruce Willis, because you'll recall there's a line, and yeah, I won't say it, of course, but there's a line from a Die Hard in which he says, yippee-ki-yay, blankety-blanker. Well, my audience knows a, a 19th century thinker named Benjamin Tucker, which rhymes with blankety-blank. So at the end, I said, yippee-ki-yay, Benjamin Tucker, and then I gave the link to go buy the product. That murdered everybody, because they're all sending emails that are getting opened by 3% of their list, because every single email is a boring pitch day after day. But I have these funny little slice of life stories. I have these business lessons. I, one time I, I wrote about a subject line was something like the ad that generated zero dollars. And that talked about I was trying to promote one of my digital products to a cold audience that didn't know anything about me. And this ad generated, I don't mean like it you know, disappointed me. It only brought in 600 bucks. I mean literally nothing. It didn't bring in anything. And it taught me about how the difference between reaching a cold audience and an audience that's been warmed up because they know, like, and trust you. And for that email, I was promoting a course on how to improve conversions on your website when you're selling something, how to get more people who visit to actually buy. And that's a natural product uh, that comes right out of this story because I was not helping to convert these people by making the same pitch to a cold prospect that I would make to a warm one. Remember Radio Shack, they would always ask you for your phone number and your email address, and then they never did anything with it. They never contacted you. They, never, they had this whole database of information about their customers. They never did anything with it. And so when, when Radio Shack started going through the tubes, I wrote, Radio Shack died. It left you a note. And the email was about, if you're going to take the information, for heaven's sake, do something with it. And so I feel like I've always got material for that. So one of the things I'm going to be doing, by the way, that might be of some... Maybe somebody could replicate this. I'm copying this I'm, or modeling this after a friend 
I want to teach most of my audience in terms of online business are newbies and they need to be taught from the ground up. So I decided, and I promote a lot of affiliate products, other people teaching, but once you build an audience after a while, they really want you to be the teacher. They really want you to guide. Them. So I have a thing coming up in a few weeks where it's try before you buy. And the model is this, and I think this, this is a winner. The model is I'm going to teach something on June whatever or whatever the month is at such and such time, and you can come live with me, and I'm going to just walk you through step by step. You're going to watch a business being built on your screen every single step. Then I'm going to stay until everybody's questions are answered, and I don't want you to pay me one cent unless you love it, unless you feel like it's worth five times what I'm charging for it. The next morning, we'll charge you. But if you, if you decide you, you don't think it was worth it, just write to me and I won't charge you a thing. So it's $97. The next morning, they'll get charged $97 unless they write to say they don't like it. But when they get sent to that sign-up page, they're actually going to be given two options. One is pay nothing now and be charged $97 tomorrow if you loved it. Or if you want to just pay up front because you know it's going to be good, it's only $67. You save $30 if you pay right now. And it turns out that Roughly, I mean, it depends on your market and your audience, but but 60% of people are going to just pay right now. And so you get all that upfront money right there. I think that's a fantastic model to do once in a while. Now, how did I find out about that? I didn't devise that out of my head. Some of the ideas I have, I do come, come up with out of my head, but I'm always learning. I read, I subscribe to newsletters, I take courses, whatever, even a little coaching here and there. And yeah, my friend Marlon Sanders said it's called the invisible funnel and you should give it a try. And so that's what I'm going to do. So you alluded earlier to your email marketing strategy that you learned from a mentor and that it's a bit different than what most people teach. Could you break that down for us in simple terms? Like big picture, what is your email marketing strategy? It boils down to one word, and it's a fake word. Uh, the word infotainment. That's what it is. It, it can't just be silliness, right? right? But it's the opposite of what we get often told that you have to send goodwill emails that don't sell anything. I, I don't believe in that because I feel like if you have the solution to somebody's problem, you have an obligation to offer it to that person. So if somebody really needs something that you're offering, it does not help them to send an email saying, yeah, I have the solution to your problem, but today I'm going to give you some free WordPress training. What? No, just offer me what can help me. You know, so like, like that icy hot thing that helps people with with muscle and joint pain or whatever, so that older people can run around with their grandkids again. If the icy hot people said, yeah, we, we have the solution to your pain, but today we're going to talk about foot bunions and, and we're going to offer this to you for free. Like That's not, it's not helping. So infotainment. So that means I draw something from popular culture that I can extract a business lesson from and transition into a pitch for something. By the way, don't be, the other thing, hold, hold, hold the infotainment thought for a minute. Don't be afraid to send an email, even send maybe even two emails a day. If they're good, they have to be in this. If they're two pitches a day, forget it, or a pitch per day, forget it. But don't be afraid to do it because within reason, the more emails you write, the better you're going to do. And because everybody else is afraid to email or they're going to, or they're going to apologize for emailing. Never, never. If people are unhappy with what you're doing, they'll unsubscribe and, and you shouldn't fear that. Because you don't want to pay for somebody to be on your list who isn't red hot for what you're doing. So it's okay to have this natural sorting. But anyway, the, the, the infotainment can also can take the form of really almost, it can be, can sometimes take the form of inverting a common maxim. 
so that you say the opposite of what people have heard before. That makes them want to open. Or every once in a while, you have to really use this sparingly. But you think of somebody who's really popular in your niche and you say, so-and-so is wrong. Well, okay, I have to see why. <laughs> I have to see why that person is wrong. Or sometimes I tell stories from my family. And again, I can draw a business lesson or I can transition into a pitch. Or, or how about this? I have five daughters. And sometimes they have helped me a little bit with an email campaign. So for instance, I was selling a product on time management. And it was an, an ebook and video thing on time management. But it was PLR, which meant it's private label rights, which meant not only could you use it, but you could sell this product as if it were your own. You could repackage it. You could put your name on it. You could rename it. You could edit it. You could translate it into another language. You had all the rights to it. And so I was selling this to my people. And I was saying to them, this is a perfect, perfect lead magnet because you can transform it into time management for real estate agents, time management for busy moms, time management for entrepreneurs, whatever your niche is. It's a perfect, perfect rebrandable product. You know, you know how everybody, now I don't have a PLR list. I ended up coming in third in this contest, even though I don't have a, a, my list doesn't even know what PLR is, but I still sold a pile of these because for one thing, one of the emails I did, again, you got to use this sparingly. It was a one sentence email with a link, one sentence and a link and the link. And I, I, sorry, I don't remember the sentence. It was five years ago, but I just love this example. The link takes you to a video of my daughter and me putting on a puppet show. You can't actually see either one of us. And we've got these two puppets and they're talking. One of them's late all the time. One of them's really bad at time management. And so this puppet show eventually becomes a pitch for this time management product. Now, I promise you nobody else was doing that. Absolutely nobody, because it would never occur to them because they're stuck in this mentality of, I have to just lay out what all the features of this time management product are. You'll learn this and this and this and this. That's not, as the affiliate, that's not my job. My job is to get people curious enough to go to that sales page where a professional copywriter will lay out the features and benefits. That's not my job. My job is to arouse curiosity enough to get them to click that link. And so, I, as I say, I was competing against people who do nothing but sell PLR. I've never sold PLR before, and I came in third in the sales contest. So you mentioned that a lot of your emails are business lessons and you're using some sort of story or pop culture reference to make it relatable and to make it more entertaining so that they enjoy consuming it. Now, it seems to me like this could lead to a very random sequencing of emails, just something you notice, something you notice, something you notice, and the lessons that you've drawn from it. Is it in fact random or fairly random or do you try to organize these different lessons that you want to convey as you lead up to different promotions, whether that's an affiliate campaign or a campaign for one of your own products? Are you always thinking about what you're going to be selling next and using these lessons and these emails to warm up your audience for that? Or is it more miscellaneous? It kind of is just as I'm going through life, things occur to me. And I think, how could I use this to illustrate? And sometimes I do it as a mental challenge. This the absolute truth. At one time I was sitting down having Chinese food. And I thought to myself, could I make an email about this Chinese meal that would promote the current thing that I'm promoting? And the current thing I was promoting was training on how to sell high ticket. That is challenging. How do, how do you get, it's, you know, a $7 ebook is one thing. A $2,000 training course is quite another. How do you sell that? And I thought, could I take this Chinese meal? And I thought, yes, I can. Here's how. This meal cost me about 6 or $7. 
And I, in order to have the lifestyle I want, I can't imagine how many of those I would have to sell. You know, and I, so I'm not in the six or $7 Chinese meal game. I'm in the $2,000 training course game. So that was how I did it. I mm-hmm. just said, I'm sitting here and I'm contemplating how grateful I am that this food exists, but how much I would not want to be in this game. But on the other hand, it's not enough to say I would much rather sell $2,000 products. Who wouldn't? The issue is, how do you sell them? That's the problem. How do you sell them? It's way easier to sell a Chinese meal. Well, I've got just the thing for you because so-and-so has a whole training on exactly how to do it. Here's another thing we have to bear in mind. I have several membership sites. And in a way, given that a membership consists of people making recurring payments to you month after month, year after year, in a way, I almost have to market to them too, even though they're existing customers. I have to keep on keeping them interested so they don't go away. And so we were doing a session in, in, in my membership on how storytelling can be a key to writing successful sales pages and email promotions, that storytelling is really important. And I was bringing an expert on who is really great at this and, and showing you exactly what the components of the story should be. And so one of the emails I sent about that, actually, I, I credited Ben Settle because it so happened he sent out an email on this exact thing. So I gave him credit for this. And I said, I said, let's think about the movie Top Gun, because I, I, I wanted to make the point that a story can be so powerful that it can overcome, you know, mediocre copy, mediocre everything. But the story, we love stories. Human beings just love stories. And so Ben told the story of we all know the movie Top Gun, not the recent one, but the original Top Gun. Top Gun was just a movie. It's not a product. There's no sales page. There are no emails, no email marketing. It's just a movie. But it sold Ray-Ban sunglasses. They saw their, their sales go up 30% after that. And military recruitment went berserk. Like the military actually started going to cinemas to recruit people after this movie. And there was no sales copy. Nobody hired a million-dollar copywriter to write sales copy. It was nothing but a story. But that story was so powerful, it got people to do certain things. Now, that's an interesting email, isn't it? I, I, bet, I bet people listening to this right now, like me, never thought of it that way. But you're right. That was nothing but a story. And wow, did it sell. So most of the examples that you've given of emails that you've written have culminated in a call to action, normally a buy now sort of call to action, or maybe a go look at the sales page sort of call to action. And you also mentioned if you have the solution to someone's problem, don't just be giving them like some free advice, like actually offer them the solution to the problem. So do you, is your practice to end every email with a buy now type call to action, or do you sometimes have a different call to action or no call to action? always a always a buy call to action and if it ever got to a point where i every single email so i'm living proof that you can do that and and they expect and and the way Mm -hmm. i i I describe it in case i get people who are unhappy for any reason i say a lot of you people listen to or used to listen to am radio talk shows while you're driving and the person is talking about something or interviewing somebody interesting and then they go to a commercial break And everybody expects them to go to a commercial break. They don't expect them to do this for a living for free. They expect the commercial break. Well, likewise, the pitch at the end is the commercial break. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that because that's what everybody else does. And and also, I think there's this feeling that, you know, we have to give things away for for free. I don't know because I, I don't know what it is about the internet that makes us feel this way. 
I give plenty away for free. I've given 2,300 podcast episodes away for free. I've given a dozen eBooks away for free and videos and whatever, but I'm trying to build an audience with those things. But I do give them away for free. But no plumber says, look, I'll, I'll come to you. The first 10 visits I'll just do out of goodwill. We wouldn't expect that. I would feel funny if, 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 that, were, if that happened. So yeah, I'm, look, I'm making a living, but I'm making a living honestly by offering you things that if you implement them, and that's the key if, will make things better for you. I also see a big difference between the emails you're describing where you're actually not only are you entertaining with a story, but you're also communicating a valuable business lesson in the email. You are giving them value in the email, even though it's culminating with a call to action. Whereas sometimes we see sales emails that start out with a story that's kind of the hook for the email. And then it leads into just talking about the features and the benefits of the product and the buy now. Right. And there wasn't really any value that was gained from the email itself. Whereas it sounds to me like every email you send, your goal is to have it be valuable and entertaining and also end with this call to action. Would you say that that's true? Yeah, ideally, I want I want them to be able to think because because that example I gave about Top Gun, that really did affect the way I thought about things mm -hmm. after that. Or, or, for example, we all know about the widow of the Nigerian prince who needs to move money and is going to give you a cut if you help out, that sort of thing. I legitimately had a Nigerian write to me and say, you owe me $60,000. So I had the opposite. Normally, the Nigerian is supposed to give me money. You owe me $60,000. And I said, how is that possible? He said, well, you say that you offer a $30 affiliate commission on your, your membership site. Well, I, look at all the clicks I brought you. I brought you 2,000 clicks. Well, obviously, I don't give $30 per click, right? I mean, why would I? Who would? And so I looked at this. Well, how many sales did that translate into? And of course, it was zero. And I said, well, how did you promote a product about American history to a Nigerian audience? I mean, what, what, what methods were you doing to warm them up? And I never heard from him again. So that gave me, I had a great subject line about the Nigerian prince. It's a reminder to us that it's not enough to just, I don't know what this guy was doing, but you have to think about the needs of the audience you're serving and and make the connection between. The th I mean, it, it's one thing if you think the product is really awesome. That doesn't matter. People don't care about you and your likes or dislikes. They care about themselves. How's this going to help me? And sometimes we forget little things like this. Sometimes we, we think they should want this thing, you know, or, or I can just pitch something any old way. And we have to remember not to do that. So, so anyway, my, I, I guess I'm just saying that I, I, I'm constantly reminded of lessons all the time because if for no other reason, I see people doing things the wrong way a lot and I want to help them do things the right way. Just the other day on my membership site, I had somebody on who did an audit of people's homepage and we had people whose homepage above the fold, there weren't any words. Like we don't even know what they do. And that's, we have to fix that. Or they're way too early telling us all about themselves and, and literally their dog and whatever. If you're going to put that on an about me page, first, I want to see what can it do for me? Or there was a chiropractor and he had this really neat graphic in the upper left corner of the screen. It was a skull and you could see going down into the spine and it was pointing out different things and, you know, very medical. But we said much more important than that is to have a picture of a grandfather running around with his grandchild. People out enjoying life because they're no longer burdened by pain. That's what you want up there. You know, so there's so and, and, and as soon as you tell that to people, they instantly see it and say, ah, oh, you're right. You're right. Of course, that's how I should have done it. So there's so many opportunities, so many things to be learned, um, so much good advice to be given. 
that I just never seem to run out of things to say. Are you ready to finally take the leap in your business to making six figures year after year? I would love to work with you to turn your inconsistent income into consistent 10K plus months. And we've created an entire program to guide you to do exactly that. It's called 100K Mastermind, and it's a 12-month mentorship that will guide you to set up your strategic automated sales funnel system and fuel it with ready-to-buy leads. Because we know that you don't just need a funnel, you need a strategically designed funnel based in sales psychology, and you need a system that's going to send leads into it because a funnel without any leads flowing through it isn't gonna make you any money. If you're interested in working together to get your six-figure system set up, then head to gillianperkins.com slash 100K. That's gillianperkins.com slash 100K. On that page, you're going to find all the details about the program, what we cover in it, exactly what you'll learn and what you'll accomplish, as well as the dates for our next cohort, and the link to apply. Again, just visit gillianperkins.com slash 100k. I can promise you this, your business and life will never be the same. Okay, so Tom, let's take a little bit of a right turn now. I know that you have a background in economics and history, as you mentioned. And so could you tell the listeners a little bit about your background with economic philosophy? Well, I have a PhD in history, but I have been reading economics for a long time, let's say. And I've written a book on it, actually. I wrote a book called Meltdown, came out in early 2009. It was really the first book to come out on the 2008 financial crisis. I realized that this is a product I can create at this critical moment in American history when a lot of people are searching for answers. And I think I have some of those answers. The publisher initially told me, no, no, thank you. We're not interested in that book. And I actually thought to myself, yeah, maybe it was a stupid idea. But then I said, no, no, wait a minute. No, this is a great idea. So I went back to them and said, I'm really going to urge you to reconsider this. I'm sure this is going to do well. It spent 10 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. I was right. Okay, I'm not always (laughs) right. I've had some clunkers, but I was right. So when it comes to economics, there are a lot of different economic philosophies out there. Could you describe in simple terms, what is your economic philosophy? So I'm associated with a school of thought It's not a brick and mortar school. It's a school of thought called the Austrian School of Economics. And we have a Nobel Prize winner, F.A. Hayek, won it in 1974. And he won it basically for trying to figure out why it is that the economy seems to be cyclical. Like, why are we doing well? And then a whole lot of us are doing badly all at the same time. And then we're doing well and then badly. Why why isn't it just like a maybe a gradual improvement? Why is it like a sign curve? Particularly because... And the particular mystery around this is that the economy tends to select for the better entrepreneurs. If you're a poor entrepreneur, you get weeded out. You you make losses and we never hear from you again. So the market selects for the good entrepreneurs. So given that, why would the good entrepreneurs who are good at anticipating consumer demand, why would these people who have been selected in the economy, why would they all make the same kind of error at the same time? You know, why, why would that be? And so he was trying to come up with the answer for this. And so the, so the Austrian school, if you want to know like kind of what the gist of it is, it is what, what makes it, I think, compelling to the average person is that it is more or less non-mathematical, is that it, it says that really what we need to understand for economics is conveyable through logic and that mathematics is just simply adding an unnecessary complication to what we already know. Like I, 
I'm sure I could explain mathematically in some way the process of tying my shoes, but why would I? What additional insight do I get from that? So the, basically, the, the Austrian school looks at economics as being different from physics. It's not that we go out and we make some observations and then we test them using the scientific method. That's, that's not how, how it works. Um, we rather have first principles that we deduce from, as in geometry. We don't derive the Pythagorean theorem by going around with a ruler and measuring triangles. Right? We, and we say, oh my gosh, isn't that unbelievable? All of them, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. I don't know, maybe, but maybe the next one won't be. We don't say that. We have absolute certainty that every triangle is going to conform this way. But the, so the Austrian school is entirely descriptive. It just, there's no Austrian school policy on the budget or Austrian school policy on infrastructure spending or whatever. The Austrian school simply describes for you how the economy works and what's likely to happen if you do A, B, and C. And you may say, yeah, I understand that there will be downsides to investing in infrastructure. I know that the money is going to be taken from somewhere it could have gone otherwise and that that cause will now starve at the expense of the infrastructure. But I just feel like the infrastructure is so important that we have to do that. Okay, fair enough. You can make your value judgments. The Austrians are not there to make the value judgments for you. They're just, made, they're just there to describe the likely consequences. So if you print a lot of money and pump it into the economy, prices are going to be higher than they would have been otherwise. And maybe you, maybe you don't care about that, but we're here to tell you that's the process. I think that when a lot of people think of economics, they equate it with mathematics, even if they don't like math themselves, even if they don't understand the math of it, they think that economics is math. And so to describe Austrian economics as like, we're just going to say how things are and we're not going to go out there and measure things. We're not going to do the math that I feel could almost be off-putting to some people. And they think, oh, well, then this isn't real economics. What's your counter argument? Well, economics up until recently was actually not that, not particularly mathematical. It actually all followed the Austrian approach. It was, I think, it was economists wishing they could have the prestige of the physicists. You know, look, we use calculus too. Yeah, okay, but the thing is, you're dealing with human beings who have goals and purposes and who are all individuals. You're not dealing with inanimate projectiles. Yeah, you, could, you would study inanimate projectiles using math because if I throw something, I know exactly how it's going to go. But do you really have a mathematical certainty about how everybody's going to act? And so mathematical economics then has to make assumptions about human behavior. Well, let's assume that everybody is profit maximizing. Well, whoa, says who? Is Mother Teresa profit maximizing? Like, this kind of assumption that you have to make in order to make everybody into an inanimate projectile is not legitimate. So the Austrians would say everybody wants to improve his his well-being, but that's not always expressed in monetary terms. There are a lot of ways that my well-being could be improved that have nothing to do with money per se, but we wouldn't say, well, then that's non-economic behavior. It's all economic behavior. Economic behavior is just about making choices in a world of limitations. Making choices with the limited means you have is an economic choice. But And, and so we, we wouldn't say if somebody takes a lower paying job over a higher paying job that he's being irrational or he's being non-economic. No, it's that there's more to life than money. There's a bundle of things that are tied together in that decision. Maybe he likes the location better. Maybe he likes the people he's working with. Maybe everybody's at the, a jerk at the other job. That's why they have to pay more to, to, to put up with these people. So we don't look at it that way. Or, or it's like the idea of homo economicus, that, well, if we're going to do economics, we have to assume that people, 
How about we do economics just assuming nothing about people except that they have goals and they're trying to pursue those goals? And how can economics help us understand how we can all best coordinate our common pursuit of goals? That's what we're trying to do. So could you break down for me some of the main principles of Austrian economics? First of all, Austrian economics begins with the observation that human beings act, which simply means they have goals they're trying to reach. That is, that's the starting point. And so like we can all agree, right? Human beings act, human beings have goals. That's something we can all agree. Yeah, we start with something everybody agrees, because even if you try to argue against it, well, what did you just do? You had a goal of trying to refute me, and then you used the limited means that you have you know, your body, your vocal cords, your standing room to try to refute me. Well, you're refuting yourself because that was the, you know, the, the, the accomplishment of a goal. So we begin with, and as, as I say, I have a video where I actually take people from that insight and you can pull out from that the idea of cost, of opportunity cost, of marginal utility, of the law of demand. It boils down to this, that when you have an economy, let's say an unhampered market economy where people are just free to buy and sell things on whatever terms they choose, as long as there's no force or fraud involved, then this gives rise to prices of goods. And the prices of goods are not arbitrary. They're not something that some king could hand down. No king, unless we had money prices and people freely buying and selling, no king could just arbitrarily say, all right, I'm going to say that milk is going to be $12 a gallon. And I'm going to say that a countertop should be uh, $100 per square foot. He would have no way, this would all be arbitrary and it would result in complete chaos because too much of one thing would be produced and too little of another thing would be produced. What the Austrian school fundamentally shows is the extraordinary coordination that occurs even when there is no coordinator running things. There's nobody with horn that tells people in our economy, go produce pencils or uh, you know, go produce more steak dinners. There's nobody doing that. And yet we get pencils and we get steak dinners with really no surpluses or shortages. And when you think about the complexity involved, even in something like a pencil, which is the classic example that, that we tend to use, uh, we think, oh, my friend Joe works at the pencil factory. I know he knows how to make a pencil, but he doesn't really. Because to make a pencil, think of everything that's involved. First of all, you gotta chop down a tree for the wood. What are you going to chop it down with? You need a saw, which means you need some kind of metal, which means you need to know how to, to, to you need to do like iron ore or something, and you need to know how to, all these processes. And then you got to transport that, that metal, which means you need vehicles, which means you need tire, which tires means you need rubber for the tires, which means you need to know all the chemistry and the production process involved in creating the rubber for the tires. It, when, you, when you break it down, it seems almost like impossible that anyone could make a pencil because I'm not even talking about the uh, the eraser or the graphite you have to get from South America or the and, and and all the coordination involved. You would think you would need a central planner telling everybody, all right, look, you have to produce graphite, you have to produce wood, you have to produce the transportation, you have to refine the oil, and then you have to learn all these. And yet, oddly, all of this occurs seemingly automatically because the price system tells people what's most urgently needed. It tells them what to go do. And if they make too much of something, the price falls to a point where they can't make a profit, so they stop doing it. Price goes back up a little bit. The price goes way up. People want to make profits. They create more of that thing. And the abundance of that good pushes the price back down, and then people don't want to produce it as much anymore. And we get to a kind of equilibrium. 
This is an astonishing thing, no right to expect. And it occurs right before our eyes every single day. And all we do about it is complain. All we do is complain. But what, what, the way I think of it is this. Last thing. I can buy a toaster at Walmart for what? 15, 20 bucks at most. There's a guy, you can find him on, uh, I think he gave a TED talk about it, who tried to build a toaster from scratch. And he tried to follow all the processes. from. And he, he, he went all around the world. And he, and he had to months and months and months and months. And then he plugged it in and it worked for two minutes and it blew up. I can go to Walmart and for $15, now think of how much time it would take me to construct a toaster from scratch. Again, all the inputs I would need to, to get and, and I have to make them in the right shape and whatever. The time, the know-how I would need and the time of that know-how, it would be th the equivalent of thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Instead of doing that, I can just go buy a toaster from somebody for $15 who specializes in toast. And so the division of labor where we specialize in things means that instead of me living in dire poverty, trying to make everything myself, I can instead make something you know that I'm kind of good at. And the proceeds from that allow me to get not only a toaster, but a winter coat, uh, a tuna sandwich or whatever, that if I tried to make on my own, I couldn't. But the economy through this invisible coordination process, in effect, is that toaster might as well be free compared to what it would. It would cost me probably 10 grand to try to do that myself. $15 compared to that is almost like zero. I think about that whenever someone comments that something is overpriced or too expensive and just like, could you make it for less? I don't think so. Looks like a great deal to me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Compare it to what it would cost you to make it. Yeah, absolutely. Like just like you said, I would I think it is so much smarter, both in my part as an individual and as society as a whole, for us each to do a specialized job that we are actually good at and we can all work together in that way. So that kind of leads me right into my next question, which is according to Austrian economic philosophy, what is the role of the entrepreneur in the economy? Okay, for the for the Austrian school, the way they describe the entrepreneur is he is or she, the coordinator of production. He is the one who, in effect, he's not infallible because nobody can know the future perfectly. There's always uncertainty about the future. But he appraises the, the situation that he faces in terms of what is, what is likely to be consumer demand in the future. What are people going to want by the time I bring the thing I'm making to market? If their tastes have changed by the time I bring this thing to market, that's not going to be any good. I have to be able to think about the future. And to think about the future, I look at inputs. Uh, I look at information I have now. I have an array of prices that exist. I have certain things people seem to like. And the entrepreneur adjusts things. The entrepreneur thinks, you know, these inputs to make this product seem underpriced to me. Like if I bought these inputs, like an assembly line, let's say, or even, I don't know, a steam shovel, whatever the, the, the machine is, if I bought these and combined them in a certain way, I think I could create a product that would earn me way more than I spent on the inputs to create it. And in that way, I am taking resources and moving them toward their most value productive uses. The entrepreneur is there to make sure that we're not wasting resources, that we, that not everybody's cut out to be an entrepreneur. So if somebody is using resources to create, I don't know, uh, popsicles that have porcupine needles in them, nobody wants that. So that would be a waste of resources. So you're pulling resources 
toward less value productive end. It's the goal of the entrepreneur looking ahead to the future to say, where should the, the scarce resources of society be optimally employed so that we create the greatest abundance that satisfies the preferences of as many people as possible? That is the job of the entrepreneur. So essentially, the entrepreneurs, along with the consumers, kind of work together to create those prices that then inform the decisions of the entrepreneurs in the future. Um, but what obstacles can prevent entrepreneurs or consumers even from successfully fulfilling that role of making those market decisions? Okay, well, sometimes it's direct interference in the price system, So, if, which is rare these days. Would you say it is rare? I would say it is maybe less common or, or sneakier, but it seems to me like there's a lot of price control that happens. I guess I mean it's not as blunt. It's, it's not. Well, the, the, the classic case of price control, though, which which doesn't exist mm -hmm. as much as it used to, although it is still out there, would be uh, for for rental properties. And so, if if you quote unquote control that price, mm -hmm. that sends a signal to entrepreneurs. Well, then obviously there's no point in creating any more rental properties because my, you know what I'm earning could be arbitrarily capped, and I'm not going to do that. I have a friend who teaches at Loyola University, New Orleans, who says if you actually wanted to make rental prices go down. Now, we wouldn't actually do this. It's just a thought experiment. Actually, what you would want to do is literally the opposite of this. You would want to control all other prices in the economy and let rental prices fluctuate because then entrepreneurs would say, well, the only profitable area now is rental. So we'll all go do that. And then the greater abundance of rental properties will bring the rental prices down. You know, so so that's one thing. But also, of course, high taxation. Um, when if, if uh, you know, when a firm has profits, a lot of people hear the word profit and they think the owner takes that money and buys a yacht with it. But if, if that's all he's going to do with it, he's going to go right out of business. You got to take most of those profits, reinvest them in the business by buying the kind of goods that make production more abundant, faster, more efficient, higher quality. So you need machinery. You invest in that. But if you can't invest in that, then you're that disrupts the production process as well. Um, so really anything that gets in the way of people making free decisions regarding buying and selling or that sends the wrong signals or when resources are diverted into politically favored ends, well, then entrepreneurs think, well, I guess the, the real, the really important thing I should be doing with my time is lobbying the government instead of wasting their time lobbying the government. That's a, that's a dead weight loss to society. That's time they could have been spending uh, you know, growing more food or, or making more cars or whatever. Well, Tom, thank you so much for everything that you have shared today with regards to building your brand and email marketing. I thought those insights were really interesting, as well as that role of the entrepreneur in the economy. Uh, for the listeners to learn more about economics and your work with American history and your work with small business and entrepreneurship, where can they go online to find out more about you and consume some of this content that you're creating? Well, since there are two Tom Woodses, there's the internet marketing Tom Woods and there's the economics Tom Woods. You know, I'm, I hate to violate a marketing principle, which is give people only one call to action. I think I am going to just give them the one call to action because because you know, TomWoods.com is my main website. But in terms of what I do with the with like online business and some of the stuff we talked about today, I have a bunch of, of freebies that I give away related to that. And so as I leave you today, I'll leave one final little lesson, and that is test things. I have a squeeze page. I'm going to give it to you. It's pathstoincome.com. And that gives you an ebook I wrote myself 
on five things I do to make my living. And it, it gives you step by step how I do them. And I, I'm really proud of that thing. I think it's I think it's really valuable. So it's so the book is called Five Paths to an Online Income. And I give it away for free at paths to income.com. Well, the, the, the lesson I'm going to leave you with is this. That used to be that page, paths to income.com, used to have the book cover. The book cover is a beauty. I used to have the book cover on it, bullet points, like what you're going to learn. And a friend of mine said, have you tested this page against a totally barren page with no graphics and no bullet points, just an invitation to opt in? And I said, why would I? This page is gorgeous. Why? And he said, Tom, do I have to send you back to Marketing 101? Doesn't matter if you like it. It matters if people sign up. So I said, all right, wise guy, I'll rip out the book cover. I'll rip out the bullet points. And if you go to pathstoincome.com, you will see the, I guarantee you, it is the most bare bones opt-in page you have ever seen in your life. It is like almost nothing. It's like me saying, hey, look, a lot of knuckleheads make excellent livings online. You are smarter than a knucklehead. Enter your email address and I'll share with you what I know. That's the entire page. And that thing converts at 18 percentage points higher than the beautiful page. This hideous page with nothing on it. Now, you would never guess that, which is why it's valuable to test. Because I'll tell you something, it's way easier to test and modify your opt-in page and get 18% better opt-ins than it is to attract 18% more traffic. That's just a fact. It's way easier. So test everything. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Tom. That's fantastic. I really appreciated having you on the show. And just thank you so much for everything you shared with us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Work Less, Earn More. Now, here's what I want you to do next. Take a screenshot of this episode you're listening to right now and share it out on your Instagram stories. And when you do, make sure you tag me at Gillian Z Perkins so I can see you're listening. Sharing on stories is going to help more people find this podcast so they too can learn how to build their business in a way that allows them to work less and earn more. And if you really love the show, head over to Apple Podcasts right now and leave Work Less, Earn More a review to give it a boost and help even more people find it. Okay, let's wrap this up. I'm Gillian Perkins, and until next week, stay focused and take action.